When I first arrived in the UK, I thought I would easily find a job in the media. I had already worked as a fixer for some journalists in Turkey, and I took some journalists around refugee camps. If you don't know what a fixer does, let me explain it for you. When a journalist goes to Turkey to cover Syria, they need a local person who can interpret and translate and connect them with the local people. Someone who knows interesting stories and who knows the community and has connection. And that's what I did. I connected journalists with locals. I've worked with many journalists. Some were really good and ethical and others were really bad and had no idea about our culture and politics. I thought someone like me would find a job easily and help make better reports for the UK media. When I arrived in the UK, I started applying for jobs, but I was rejected pretty much everywhere. I was so desperate and I needed a job, so I applied to the fast food industry, McDonald's, KFC, Burger King, you name it. But my city had nothing about fast food. It was mainly journalism, documentary filmmaking, and teaching. I didn't get any of the jobs that I applied for. I later learned that you need a bit of manipulation in order to get the job. Which doesn't really show that you're the right person for the job, but rather you know how to manipulate people so they think you're the right person for the job. The question that annoyed me the most during the interviews is, why do you want to work for us? Why would you ask such a question when the post is a minimum wage job, a minimum wage cleaning job? What am I supposed to say? I like shit and stuff, but I guess what? I got the job. I was cleaning shit and that was my first job in the UK. I actually quite enjoyed it. Not the shit cleaning stuff, but the fact that I had a job and I was able to provide food and contribute with my tax to the community. I also worked for Starbucks in a couple of cafes until I managed to land a teaching job at the university. Getting a job in this country was not an easy thing, especially when you're a newcomer. You do not have the support network that you need to rely on. In today's podcast, I talked to someone who couldn't find a job, even though she had a master's degree and over eight years of experience in her country, Yemen. She, just like me, had to start from scratch. Stay with us to hear more about Yusra's integration stories. I'm your host, Abdul, and this is Integrate That, a podcast about refugees by refugees. When applying for a new post, many companies ask you to explain any gaps in your CV. In my case, how do I explain a couple of years of being a displaced and a refugee in another country? Should I mention that I jumped on the back of a truck to cross the borders to flee my hometown, Aleppo? Or should I say that I was made redundant because the school was destroyed by the regime? When applying for asylum at the home office in Croydon, you don't get any advice regarding securing a job. There are, though, some private charities, which offer some sort of support. But even if I could explain the gaps in my CV, who could I nominate to be my reference in the UK? 
Many of my employers in Syria did not have an email address or they have died or disappeared. So arriving in the UK, one needs to start from scratch, literally. Even when you already have the experience needed to do the job that you want to do. Yusra had a similar experience. She came to the UK from Yemen to do her master's degree at the University of York, north of England. So I did master's here in um, post-war recovery studies because my experience back home was mostly in conflict and development. Just building states after war, so development also from the political perspective, humanitarian intervention, rule of law and all these kind of things. From a perspective of post-war recovery studies, I did learn different experiences of other countries. I did struggle a bit with the education system here in the UK, which is different from where I come from. Yusra and I didn't write academic essay in our home countries. We pretty much didn't know how to properly reference an article or write academically. English is not the language of education, so we learned everything in Arabic. However, speaking Arabic and English was on demand for many charities and NGOs because the war in the Middle East was booming. It was literally booming. So I started working in Amnesty a week after the war started in Yemen. I worked there until my visa was about to finish. I was trying to apply for a job in Amnesty International, but they wouldn't sponsor my visa unless I apply for asylum and then come back and work with them. And after I applied for asylum, I, re I decided not to <laughs> come back or apply for amnesty. I did change completely the sector that I was working in. But I did face a lot of challenges because I kept applying for jobs in, in the same field, in charities and in organizations that work either in the UK or like on issues that has to do with the Middle East because of the experience and I, I have and I had about when I came to the UK I had like more than eight years of experience working on the ground in Yemen in both grassroots and also policy making level and advocacy but I wasn't able to get a job and I thought it's just a matter of applying more when I started applying for a job I thought it was only a matter of time until I get myself a job in the media. But I was wrong. Getting a job in the media was all about connections and volunteering. Maybe I was wrong, but at least this was my own experience. I did volunteer in many places, but I wasn't looked at as someone who can just, just get the job. I needed to either climb the ladder or be known, you know, as someone who they already know. What I learned here is that you need to know someone to be able to get a job, and it is in many countries, and I think specifically in the charity sector. But this is a challenge that every refugee would definitely face, which is having the network when you are a newcomer to a country, you don't have that network and you need to survive. So uh, I worked in coffee shops, I worked in restaurants, and I kept volunteering, attending events. I was so active also on Yemen issues on the side. 
So I had to do it in a different way. So although I'm already above 30 years old, I came here. You have to create your own network in a way. And I think this is an advice that you, it's not given to a refugee or facilitated to a refugee. It's not just arriving and getting a job. It's building that network that is that a refugee lacks just because he comes from a different background. From my experience, most of the refugees that I know had to work for a coffee shop at some point. I worked for Starbucks, Yusra worked for a different one, but at least it was a start. I was not asked the famous question that I hate so much, why do you want to work for us? Isn't it obvious because I needed money? However, you need to work your way around this question. But for Yusra, working in a coffee shop was something she wanted to do. She loved working in a coffee shop, but it was not only a coffee shop for her, it was the coffee, it was the coffee industry. So new career was a shift that I made deliberately to move away from charities. Well, first because it was too depressing to work in charity when my country was just falling apart in front of my eyes when I'm away. And also not being able to get a job, basically I have to just volunteer. So I needed to support myself and that's why I knew it's so easy to get a job in a coffee shop. There is a high demand for waitress and waitresses and, and baristas in the UK. There is actually a lack of those people, so they, they, are, they are needed. Uh, so it was an easy thing to go to. So, but I had to work seven days a week because I need to support myself. I needed to help to, to, to stand on my feet. And during that is when I, uh, I studied also a lot of courses about coffee. People look at my CV and this happened to me when I applied, even as a barista. People look at my CV and it's too depressing for the coffee sector. You know, it's like masters and conflict and women's rights. And why would they hire this? Yusra was told that her CV looks quite depressing. It is quite funny to hear this remark in an interview when you're trying to get the job. What do you answer? Yes, it is quite depressing. I'm depressed. Please employ me. For me, it was the opposite sometimes. I was once applying for a teaching position at a university. When I was asked about why I wanted to teach at that university, when I'm a well-rounded person, I do stand-up, I run marathons, and I have some volunteering experience. Well, I told the guy that those were my hobbies, but teaching was my passion. And of course, I needed to say this because I needed to get that job. But seriously... What are you supposed to say to this remark? That you're right, you shouldn't apply for this job, goodbye sir? I don't know. However, Yusra knew. Yusra had a different approach. I started from scratch. You have to meet people so that when they see the CV, it's not just someone who came from another country who God knows what they are like, you know, and just too much headache. To make her CV less depressing, and part of why Yusra had to work seven days a week is that Yusra is now an artist. She draws, paints, and makes sculptures. But it hasn't been an easy ride for her as she finds it really difficult to share her work online. Art is something I always wanted to do. Art is something I've been doing since I was four years old. I've been just drawing when I was a kid, but I come from Yemen, and I think that's the difference between me and you coming from Syria. And this is, 
Yeah, I mean, in Yemen, you can't do figurative art. You can't draw a woman or a man or a head. It's forbidden. When I was a child, even cartoonish, cartoonic characters, they will be like, they will cut, they would draw a line on the neck and say, you shouldn't, you should, you should make it not human because God will punish me, punish you in the day after, in the life after. It was something I had to, at some point, and like when I was 10, I remember I was still drawing girls underwater, girls walking, things like that. But then after that, after like 10 years old, I, I started to draw just secretly. Recently, especially now that I got the job, once I got the job and I was paid, I started taking classes. I finally was able to pay for classes because they're really expensive. <laughs> and I do classes evenings and weekends. So I'm actually busy seven days a week again. So I'm experimenting everything, like different kind of art, but I'm so into sculpture and um, it is something. Now I'm working on a sculpture that I'm thinking how how on earth can I put that on my Instagram or or Facebook? I can't. I showed it to a friend and she was she thought it was appalling. While it is very common nowadays to find some graphic images from war-torn countries taken by locals or exhibitions about war curated by war survivors, Isra had a different approach to drawing and to war. I don't plan to let war shape my art. And this is something that recently when I started sharing my drawings, so only a few drawings, paintings that I started to share with friends. And, and a few sculptures, <laughs> but not the whole thing. So I got friends telling me to draw about the war and um, about peace and these things. And this made me feel like I'm being forced to not be an artist, you know? It's like, you come from a war zone, draw about a war zone and paint about a war zone and, and that's all you can do. And it makes me so angry. And I spoke to friends about it because they keep sharing things like, you know, there's people who are drawing about refugees or like painting about women's, you know, experience in conflict. And I'm like, no, I just want to draw flowers. You know, just, just like any other, other person. I just want to paint what I feel maybe whatever, you know, just trees or landscape or something like that. It doesn't have to be war, <laughs> you know. Where do you think you're going to display your nude um, sculpture? I don't know. I don't. It would never go on Instagram, I think. <laughs> I don't know. Do you see one day you're going to put it in public somewhere in London? I don't know. This is, I think I would make maybe 10 of them <laughs> before I put them and then get ready <laughs> to be disowned and to be <laughs> attacked by like so many people. It's very difficult in Yemen. Can you donate one for me? When, when you made 10 of them. Ten <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> For the record, Yusra refused to say yes when I put her on the spot. But she recently said yes, and she would give me one sculpture for free when she has made 10. She is making her way up now. And before I finish off this episode, I asked Yusra if she wanted to say anything on her mind as an advice or anything she wanted to express. And this is what she said. As a refugee, I would recommend for refugees to create their own network uh, by l 
it's okay start from scratch work in coffee shops um, try to think strategically so that you aim for something and you just climb the ladder somehow faster just like I did but I also want to give advice to refugees who are here and who manage to get jobs to to share this thing with other refugees it's something I learned from being away from home let alone that home is actually falling apart is that when you're away a helping hand or someone who does make your life slightly more difficult is extremely big it makes a huge impact on you sometimes someone who is just let you in a door and it's just like you know just to speak to you about their company or like you know I don't know to just answer the phone or a reply to your email makes your day and make make you feel like okay there's a chance there's hope you know when you actually lost hope in everything lost home and hope and if someone makes it difficult just because you know or like there are a lot of people who are nice this really also has a big impact so I think us as refugees we should be a helping hand for those who are in a place where we were before Yusra did a lot of volunteering hours in the UK. I did my fair share of volunteering as well. While it was a great way to get paid and get hired for me, it didn't work for some people. I'm not really sure what I think of volunteering when a volunteer does a lot of work for free and doesn't get paid. At the end of the day, someone has to pay rent and put food on the table or on the floor. I used to eat on the floor when I was a kid growing up in Aleppo. But that's not the point. Many charities and NGOs need to really think this out. Maybe, just maybe, paying minimum wage is the least thing companies can do for their volunteers who need a job and who are doing a lot of work for free. This podcast is presented by me, Abdul Wahab Tahan, and edited by Leo Sheik. Music is by the Audio Network, and special thanks to my guest, Yusra. Mm-hmm.